You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. The filmmaker Christopher Nolan wrote in the Washington Post last week, when this crisis passes, the need for collective human engagement, the need to live and love and laugh and cry together will be more powerful than ever. I hope he's right and that that is a day we can look forward to. I hope we haven't become so ingrained against human proximity that we nervously shun public space and collective engagement because we've forged new habits of separation. I already find myself having feelings of nostalgia when I watch a movie and there's a crowded airport scene or even just a shot of a busy restaurant. It already feels so long ago. But there is good news this week for the arts from the Federal Economic Relief Funds, with Congress agreeing to invest $300 million in relief funds to the arts, and that will be administered by various agencies, including the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. And $75 million of that is also earmarked for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, so that's good news for KOPN too. And whilst this is a very positive step, I think it is also important to remember that the estimated direct loss of income for the non-profit arts industry is $3.6 billion, and that's just the non-profit sector. Overall, the arts and culture sector is an $878 billion economic industry, which supports 5 million jobs. So yes, $300 million is wonderful news, and other monies will also be available for the arts through the $5 billion being provided for the community development block grants, which go to cities and counties. And I continue to be warmed by the fabulous arts outpouring around the world and in our own community that is determined to keep us engaged, smiling and arts curious while we all live at two arms lengths from each other. The arts have always persisted through the worst of times, proving, if proof were needed, that they are a fundamental instinct, a grounding principle of what it means to be human. Books are still being written and published, musicians are composing, artists are filling canvases, films are being consumed, and I can barely begin to imagine how many playwrights are hard at work creating characters who will portray this time. And of course, each Friday morning, we continue to speak of the arts, exploring what exciting things we can all do from the comfort of our sofas, courtesy of some of our wonderful arts purveyors here in Colombia. So I hope you will sit back and enjoy the next hour of ideas and online happenings from some of the people who make Mid-Missouri such a vibrant place to live. Let's start this week in the world of film and take a trip to Ragtag Cinema for a chat with its delightful director, Barbie Banks. Hey, Barbie. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Glad to be here. Last week was the first week of the new online ragtag experience, and you opened three films for streaming, Corpus Christi, St. Francis, and Baccarat. Plus, you had a live watch party with commentary of the 2007 movie Ghost Rider. So first question, how did all that go? (laughs) It was a learning experience, for sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Kind of for everybody in the film world. The distributors, some of them were very prepared for the number of people buying films. Other ones were not. 
not as much. And so we're kind of working out all those glitches, but they did well enough that they're going to stick around for this another week. So, um, and we're just really excited that there's people who are wanting to watch first run films, even in their home. So that was good. And we're excited to be able to offer that same content this week. And then the live watch party was really good, actually. It was fun to see everybody's faces and there was, you know, typing happening and people talking and it was just really, it was exciting. And so it was kind of a trial run for some of the other things we have planned. And we were like, okay, we know how to do it now. So, <laughs> and we, um, we're lucky. We have a great partner in CenturyLink that they have us have really good internet. And so we didn't have any glitches or anything. So it was, it was fun. The movie itself is wasn't it wasn't my favorite but I'm glad I watched it with the commentary <laughs> it's amazing that it, it went without any hitches yeah we have um Steve who is our head projectionist and tech director just did all of his due diligence to make sure it was going to go smooth which for us you know presentation is really important in our theater and so we thought let's have that same standard if we're doing this virtually and in a new way so yeah it was great how many people watched, do you know, roughly? Yeah, so uh, Twitch, which is the service we use for the commentary, it has a little counter. And at the highest, we had about 67 people, which is good for, you know, a ragtag screening. <laughs> and that'll fill our small theater. And then, um, but by the end, I think we, we lost a few people. It ended up being 50 that really stuck around the whole time and watched the whole thing, which is good. So <laughs> I think some people just tuned in to see the faces of the ragtag people. It was wonderful. <laughs> and do you have any idea of how many people have been watching the uh, the mainstream movies? We're supposed to get a report from the distributor and we haven't gotten those yet. So um, I, I'll be able to fill you in next week on how many people. And we're supposed to also be able to see where in the world they're watching from. So we'll be able to tell if there's some ragtag fans, you know, all over the country. So <laughs> fantastic. OK, so what have you got for us this week? Yeah, so this week, um, we we have a series that we do with the connector MU's um, the connector is a, a project of MU that helps researchers get their research out into the community. So I always say to take the, you know, their sciencey talk and uh, dumb it down a little for our community. <laughs> Just kidding. So the connector, what we do is we pick a pop culture film and then we have a panel afterwards of researchers that put context around the film. So we've done this with Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Legally Blonde and a lot of pop culture ones that are people's favorites. So this week, we're watching, uh, just by chance, another Nick Cage film, <laughs> National Treasure. We're big fans of Nick Cage, but the connector actually picked this one. So, and it is probably one of the best Nick Cage films out there. You know, people, I, I got to be honest, I have not seen the movie. I'm going to watch it for the first time on Saturday. But um, when we hire people at the cinema, we always ask them what their favorite Nick Cage film is, and this is always the top choice. So National Treasure, it's a 2004 film, and um, it's just a, another take on all the kind of archives of our democracy. There's hidden clues in all of them that are, you know, lead us to this one national treasure that Nick Cage is trying to find. So we have the movie, and then we have three researchers who will be participating in a discussion afterwards. 
So at first glance, it doesn't seem like National Treasure has much to offer the film academic. Have you got, <laughs> what am I missing? Right. Well, um, it, it doesn't actually. It's not, you know, we wouldn't say it's a, a film that you can't, that you would watch in film school, but it is a film about, like I said, our, our these symbols of our democracy and a different take on them. So we have Jeffrey Pasley from the Kinder Institute, who is an expert on all things presidential. He actually was a speechwriter for Al Gore at one point, which is pretty cool. Um, so he'll be talking about the historian aspect of this film. And then Kelly Hansen, she is a rare book specialist um, at the libraries at MU. And so um, her area of expertise is really what the book is and how it has affected our our world. So she'll be able to talk about that. And then we have somebody who is not a professor, but works in the research world, Chris Bruno, and he um, is a specialist in computer sciences. So he will be able to discuss all the, the IT stuff that happens in this movie with National Treasure. So while the film, great graphics and, um, you know, has won some awards that are a little a little less fancy than an Oscar. <laughs> it isn't a film that is a, for a cinephile. It's more pop culture and exciting. And then hopefully these professors will be able to give us more insight into it. So uh, your online description says, ever since he was a boy, Gates has been obsessed with finding the legendary Knights Templar treasure, the greatest fortune known to man. As he tries to find and decipher ancient riddles that would lead him to it, he's dogged by a ruthless enemy who wants the riches for himself. Now, in a race against time, he must steal one of America's most sacred and guarded documents, the Declaration of Independence, or let it, and a key clue to the mystery, fall into dangerous hands it just sounds like kind of a you know, boys adventure movie it's uh, exactly it, it, make, it makes me laugh that we're going to like have an academic discussion about it I know it's funny <laughs> like all the films that we pick for um, extra credit that's kind of the point of it is to be like who would have thought this pop culture film you know back to the future would have so much research based around it and so that's it's one of our most popular series which really makes me happy that we're able to partner with MU on this and make it happen and that we can do it virtually now, you know, so. So we have to find the movie ourselves. We have to either stream it on Netflix or acquire it somehow. We can't stream it through the Ragtag site. Correct. Right? Yeah. You'll go to Netflix or it's on Amazon, various places, free on Netflix, which is good. So you'll be able to find it there and then you'll go to our Twitch page, which there's a um, link to that on our website. And that's where you'll have some pre-show content. And then we'll watch it. We'll do a countdown, watch the movie, and then the professors will come back for a discussion at the end. So a countdown to press start. Yes, So correct. everybody is kind of watching it. I do that on airplanes sometimes, you know, with, with my husband. Right. We'll watch the same movie, but like, one, two, three, go. And yeah, we're always exactly. like a half a second off each other. <laughs> exactly. So... <laughs> And then, so th then we'll have on a separate device, we'll, we'll have the Twitch link or can we do it all on the same computer? I would do it uh, separately. I would have the movie up on your TV and your laptop sitting there with, the, uh, with Twitch up. So that'll be the easiest way to do it. So, okay. And then it's twitch.tv slash ragtag film, but that link yes. is also on the ragtag website. And then we'll yep. chat afterwards. Um, fantastic. What, and that's 7 p.m. on Saturday night. Right. right? So 6.30, we have some pre-show 
content, which is just uh, trivia about our staff members and, you know, different movie trivia playing, just to give you a real ragtag feel. And then um, seven o'clock, we'll hit play and watch the movie. And and what else is on this coming week? You've got something for children, right? Yeah. So next week on Monday, we're going to be releasing um, so Canopy, which is the streaming service through the library. We picked five films from Canopy that you can access for free if you have a library card and um, put together some study guides and different um, activities for parents to do with their kids around these movies. So as we're venturing in this world of homeschooling or supplementing what CPS is doing, there'll be great films for you to watch. So it's for all ages. We have, you know, coloring pages for little kids up to um, activities for for middle schoolers where they get to kind of analyze the film and learn about some media literacy. And so we'll, we'll be distributing that via our newsletter and on social medias. It'll just be a Google Drive where you can access all the information for five different films. We also have some fun activities too where there's movie tickets you can print out and cut up so that kids can have, you know, fake movie theater in their home for everybody to come watch a movie together. It's going to be I think I would have I want to print some of those out too, so I can feel like I'm going to the movie on my sofa. Right, exactly. So <laughs> pop some popcorn, you know, watch it with with your family. Our um, education director, Kelly Fumulinar, she's been watching them with her kids and then getting kind of their feedback on them. And so it's they're going to be great. And Canopy is such a great service for everybody. And it does really lend itself to getting content to people who maybe don't have the the luxury of all the streaming services that some of us have in our homes. Perfect. Okay. Well, I I didn't get a chance to watch the Ghost Rider film last week because <laughs> I had t- two Zoom cocktail parties to attend. <laughs> I, think, I think I think in some ways my social life is busier now than it was before. Um, but I definitely want to see <laughs> I definitely want to see National Treasure this week. So I will I will aim to tune in at. 6.30 on Saturday evening with yeah, a bowl of popcorn. Definitely. <laughs> it's going to be great. We're excited about it. Well, thank you so much, Barbie. We'll check back in with you next week and see what's coming up All next right. week at Ragtag. Yeah, sounds great. Bye. Thank you to Barbie Banks, Ragtag Cinema's director. And next we fly off to the Missouri Symphony Orchestra to check in with its executive director and proud bow tie wearer, the ever dapper, Trent Rash, I guess I've never asked you about this before, but why do you love bow ties so much? I, I just feel it's a really classic, sophisticated look that just suits me. It does suit you. <laughs> it's funny that bow, bow tie wearers are just bow tie wearers for life. There's no, there's no halfway house. You're mm-hmm. either in it or you're not in it at all. Absolutely. That is so true. <laughs> Although, full disclosure, you are not wearing a bow tie today. I am not wearing one. I did think about it, though. <laughs> We'll do that next time. Okay, so each week, either you or Monica Palmer will be taking us on a medium depth, maybe not an in-depth, but a medium depth dive into a piece of classical music and its composer. And this is an analogy that I was trying to think what it reminded me of, this process. When I was a child... I remember I had some paint by water books. Do you know what I mean? Like they're black and white yes. books and then you just run a paintbrush over them with water and they they're great. They come yeah. to life. And so that's what this these segments feel like to me. Like I have this black and white image of, you know, past composers and then with a little bit of water and Monica or Trent magic, suddenly the past comes to life and you color it in for us. <laughs> I love that. And and we and you learn how colorful their pasts are, these composers. I, I love that analogy. So so whose picture are you going to color in for us today? 
Today, I'm going to talk about Franz Joseph Haydn, who is honestly known as the father of the symphony and the father of the string quartet. He's sort of considered the grandfather figure uh, during the classical era for music. He actually was a very good friend of Mozart, and he was a tutor of Beethoven. So he had his hand in a lot of other composers' lives as well. Um, he was born to actually pretty poor parents in a, in a small village in Austria, and his dad was a wheelwright, and his mom was a cook for another aristocrat. And um, while they weren't trained musicians, his dad was a very enthusiastic folk musician and taught himself the harp. So Haydn has very um, fond memories of growing up with music in his house, and he remembers his family frequently sing together. But they conveniently live next door to a cathedral, and he became a choir boy at a very young age. Um, and he had a very nice soprano voice. Um, but unfortunately, that doesn't last forever. And in 1749, he, uh, his voice started to change. And um, the Empress Maria Theresa had to complain to the choir master and say, I'm sorry, sir, but this boy no longer sounds like he's singing, but that he's crowing. <laughs> and Haydn was a, a bit offended by this. And Haydn, we'll talk more about this later, but he has, he has a, a lot of wit and humor. And he was kind of a little bit, bit of a jokester. So the next day, um, he did a little prank where while the choir was performing, he cut off the pigtail of a fellow chorister in front of him. That's just rude. <laughs> it, it is. Um, unfortunately, the choir master did not find that joke very funny. And so it just was the way. To, so he was dismissed. So then he had to set it again thinking, what am I going to do? So he did a lot of different sort of odd jobs. And then finally, he, uh, by, as luck would have it or chance would have it, he um, was ran into the path of an Italian composer named Nicola Porpora. And so he taught him everything, you know, that he needed to know because at that point he hadn't had any real true conventional training in, in music. So he was able to learn the skills through him. After that point, as it was during that time, he set off to try to get hired by an aristocrat because that's what composers did. They worked in the courts of aristocrats. So he worked for one aristocrat and unfortunately his financial uh, stability fell apart. Seems kind of apropos at this point in time. So um, he could no longer hire him. But fortunately he was hired by the Esterhazy family, which who he spent most of his life with. But um, while he was there, he, he traveled around with the family and the family had this big estate called Esterhaza that they built somewhat far away from Vienna, but rural Austria. And it was there that he did a lot of his composing. So if you were a composer in the 18th century, if you didn't yes. have a family that you were attached to, did you just not get heard? Exactly. I mean, you you were trying, there were, there were some publishing houses, but it was very hard because at that time you had to play in person. So you need to have musicians to play your music. So the best way to have those musicians who were getting paid was to play in a court where they were being paid for by your patron. So Haydn was composing these operas and these symphonies and these quartets and this chamber music that was being played in the grand ballroom, you know, of Count Esterhazy. And that's where all this music would be heard by all the rest of the aristocrats that would come for these three-hour concerts in the evenings. So while he was in the company of Nicholas is when he wrote the Opus 33, number two, which is what we're going to talk about today, this string quartet, that's, it's a string quartet in E-flat major. And this whole series of quartets, which are six of them, um, they actually are known altogether as the Russian quartets because... He wrote them and dedicated them to the Grand Duke Paul of Russia, and they actually premiered on Christmas Day in 1781 at the Viennese apartment of the Duke's wife, the Grand Duchess Maria Fedorova. As you do. Uh, I would love that. <laughs> I would love to have a premiere of a string quartet on Christmas Day at my house. Probably with tea and cake, too. With tea and cake, exactly. But the one we're going to specifically focus on is number two in this set of six, and um, it's a quartet in E-flat major, and it's nicknamed The Joke. And the one that is most well-known is, is Movement 4, the Presto Movement. And um, 
what he's done in, in this particular um, quartet is you really see his joke, his, his humorous personality shine through. And he was known in his court to play a lot of jokes on his musicians. So in this particular last movement of this piece, there's a real big surprise at the end of the movement, which we'll hear here in a little bit, to hear how we don't know if it's really over or not. And so it's, he's playing a joke not only on the musicians, but on the audience itself. What's really funny is it was said that when this piece performed, Haydn had told his musicians, oh, I'm going to have to be out of town. I'm so sorry. I can't attend this performance or this other. My vice Kappelmeister will be helping to conduct for you. And it was said that he actually did not leave town, but he came into the audience in disguise and was heckling the number as it was being played by the musicians to the point where they were a little flabbergasted until he revealed himself and everyone, to the delight of everyone. Oh, Hayden, you jokes. Oh, yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) There he was, apropos for this particular piece. So I think that's a kind of a really neat story that goes along with it. Well, let's listen to a little clip of it. This is the fourth movement of Haydn's Opus 33, number two, played here by the Missouri Symphony's conservatory group, Cloud Nine. And this recording was made at the symphony's annual meeting just a few weeks ago on March the 1st.
that was Haydn's Opus 33, number two, the final section, with the little joke that he put in, where you don't know as the audience, well, you do if you've heard it before, but you don't know if you're hearing it for the first time, where the piece ends. And I, I read that uh, Haydn wrote the ending in order to win a bet that the ladies will always begin talking before the music stops. <laughs> And also, you know, it's you're always going to have somebody that's probably going to start clapping <laughs> before they, they, they should. I mean, and that's exactly what he wanted. He delighted in that sort of prank on the audience itself. You know, and it really relies a little bit on the quartet, too. So there's a yes. the, the final pause before that little end bit. They can kind of, you know, put their bows down, look like they're about to stand up. So the audience thinks, you know, this is the end. So the quartet kind of has to be in on the joke, too. Absolutely. Yeah, they, it's, it's a really great um, exercise for a string quartet and some acting skills because they do get to portray as elaborately as they want to, you know, sort of that joke at the end. The recording that you just used was actually one of our uh, conservatory string quartets called Cloud Nine. They are all young women ages eighth grade to sophomores in uh, high school. They've been playing together for four years. So they've been playing since they were young ones. But they were working on this piece in a masterclass with the Alias Quartet, which we had here in February. And one, I remember one of the members said, you know, this middle section is like a hoedown. The B sections, you just, it's almost like you're at a hoedown and then everybody's slapping their knee. And I thought that was such a, a great um, image to give them, how, that, how he uses such a different sort of feel in the middle from the two ends. Um, but all of it's very jovial. That's the great, the great part about this piece is that you can't go away from it not at least getting a little chuckle. And from a classical audience, that's a good thing to get a little chuckle out of the audience. So it never seems to um, not get that chuckle from the audience at the very, very end. Well, we just heard a little clip on today's show, but if somebody wants to listen to Cloud9 playing the full quartet, where can they listen to it? Yes, we uh, are in the process of putting a lot of these performances on our website. So um, if you visit www.themosey.org, you will find a link at the top there that has recordings of our conservatory. Well, thank you so much for sharing the piece of music and the story that goes behind it. And I look forward to, I love these little segments every week. I look forward to seeing what we're going to find out about next week. Thank you so much, yes. Trent Rash. You're welcome. The next stop on our Whistle Stop Arts Tour are two of my favourite improv actors, otherwise known as the Artistic Director of Talking Horse Productions, Adam Bretsky, along with the actor who should absolutely be a cast member on Saturday Night Live, but who instead teaches journalism at Hickman High School, the one and only <laughs> Kathleen Johnson. <laughs> I am determined to get you onto Saturday Night Live somehow, Kathleen. I am here for it. Whoever needs Whoever can put that juju up into the air, do it, because I'll take it. <laughs> okay, so last week we had a really fun improv lesson where I got to do, fortunately, unfortunately, and play that game with you, which was a lot of fun. Um, what have we got this week? Yeah, so we thought, Adam and I did some scheming behind the scenes and thought that it might be fun over the next few weeks while we're all stuck here to kind of take you all through sort of the building blocks of improvisation. Um, and we'll kind of tackle different skills that are essential to improv each week and hopefully play some games while we do it at a more beginner level and then maybe a more advanced level. So for those of you who have never done improv, there's a way you can access it. And for those who have already played around but still wanna have fun, maybe uh, something that's a little bit 
higher brow as well. Okay, I'm glad that I'm here for the beginner part of it because I, I don't want to do the higher brow <laughs> bits. <laughs> it's too terrifying. Okay. You know, it's funny that you say that because one of the things that uh, I, I always consider to be an asset of improv actors is the ability to listen and play off one another, which Diana, you do all the time in your show because let's, let's be honest, you never know what's going to happen on your show. I like to think that I'm like <laughs> largely... <a> <laughs> I think I'm largely in control. I like to think I'm largely in control, but you know, that's part of the prep work. So, you know, I guess improv's the same to some degree you're prepping because, you know, look at the stable boys or the ponies, even though it seems, but it's improvised. But I mean, you spent a lot of hours practicing, getting together and going through scenarios and learning to work with each other and learning to trust each other, which I think is the big, the biggest component of improv is that trust of your fellow players. Yeah, um, one of the best things that I've ever heard it compared to is like a basketball game. Improv is like a sport, uh, maybe a little less sweat sometimes. But the reality is every basketball game you play is totally different. You don't know how it's going to end when you go into it, but you still practice basketball. There are key moves and fundamentals. There's a process, there are rules, and there are building blocks that lead up to it. Um, and so, so that's what we're going to focus on. And in fact, the very first building block we're going to focus on, what I think is super essential um, and that we are generally pretty bad at as humans, but could always get better at and will make us great improvisers is listening. So fun fact, something that uh, I learned a few years ago, you know, the average human can speak at a rate of about 125, 150 words per minute, but we listen and comprehend at about twice that. And so that's why it makes it so hard for us to listen. We're expecting, we're anticipating, we're filling in. And that's one of the hardest things I think for improvisers to do when you start out is to slow down and really take in everything that's being given to you rather than trying to anticipate the next thing. So that's going to be what our two games are about today. The first one is kind of like some of the games that we did last time. So it'll be an easy access, but it's basically just one word story. So the three of us are going to tell a story together, but we're going to tell it one word at a time. Okay, got it. All right, so I'll start with the easy one. Once. Upon. A. Time. There. Was. A. Fair. Who. Loved. To. Frolic. In. The. Ocean. Period. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like to add in punctuation because I feel like it keeps everyone. <laughs> uh, okay, so once upon a time, there was a bear who liked to frolic in the ocean. So we've got an aquatic bear. This okay. is exciting. Scintillating radio. One. Day. She. Jumped. Above. A. Sailboat. When. Suddenly. The. Sailboat. Toppled. Exclamation point. <laughs> oh! No! She screamed. But then the sailboat turned. I skipped you! <laughs> I, I was so excited! Skipping me. <laughs> but then the sailboat sank and out popped a Captain called Ishmael. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> ah, I'm so sorry, Diana. Okay, but that, 
you know what, that's a good thing that happened. So oftentimes, you know, when we teach this or do it in rehearsal, you know, you have people who accidentally jump in like I did but you'll also have people who are like oh I know how that should go and then try to like get everyone in line to finish the next few and so usually I tell them like if somebody says something and it's not your turn then that is no longer an option on the table um oh so so, I think you said turned but I couldn't say turned I had to say sank or something else okay yeah 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 absolutely and so it's a good way to kind of get some of those you know, if you're doing that with students or with friends or family who like have trouble kind of not gripping onto the control of the situation <laughs> or who have impulse control issues like I do. It's a terrific exercise because what Kathleen mentioned that how we're able to process language at double the speed that we can speak it. It's a great exercise for removing expectations of where you think something is going to go. Um, A lot of times what happens when we start a sentence, we have a vision for where it's going to go. And this forces you out of that to process (laughs) it one piece at a time. Okay, let's move on to the next game. Yeah, Adam, do you want to explain this one? Sure. So we've got a game called Good, Better, what is it? Bad, Good, Good, Bad, bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. There's a lot of different names that improv games go by because none of us can agree on anything. Uh, (laughs) So this is a really simple issue. What we would do normally in a show is we would solicit the audience for questions, and then we would have one actor each that would give their best advice. The The trick is that one person offers good advice, the other person offers bad advice, and then the final person offers ugly advice. So advice that you should never take ever in a million years. Mm-hmm. So um, let's take something really simple. I'll be the good advice. Uh, Diana, you're going to listen to my good advice and you're going to tweak it just a little bit to make it uh, not so good. And then Kathleen will give our ugly advice, which is the stuff that you should never do in a million years. Okay. So let's take something uh, I think is very important right now, and that is uh, social distancing. So how should you go out in public right now? And my answer to that would be that uh, You should remember that everybody needs about six feet of space in between them. You don't want to uh, approach anybody that you don't know, and you certainly don't want to invade their personal space. And be careful to cover your mouth when you're sneezing or coughing, because we don't want to spread a virus any further. But uh, when you do meet people on the street and you you are being careful and staying six feet away, do make sure that you really project because they might not be able to hear you. They may be a little bit hard of hearing. So do make sure that you project properly so that, you know, people can hear you. If there's a little bit of spit, you know, and I mean, they're six feet away, but, you know, be careful. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I feel like all of us have a very important role to play in society right now. And if you feel like you are pretty self-important, then you need to take it upon yourself to uh, enforce those social distancing. Now, not a lot of people know this, but the tongue itself is actually one twelfth of a foot. And so if you just get out there and you, <laughs> you start by licking one person and then measuring tongue distances until you've licked the second person, that's how you can ensure that everyone else is doing that good, proper social distancing. That, that, is, that is ugly, fantastically <laughs> ugly advice, Kathleen. Thank you. 
yeah, the key is in this one, especially what I, what I think is great about it is one, it can just be fun to do, but also each one has to build upon the one that was given before it. So you can think of lots of ugly ways to answer that question, but it's a little harder. You really have to listen to what comes before to try to pick a nugget of each thing and add on to it. Now, between the two of you, Kathleen, I mean, you you really are known for more long form with the stable boys Mm. and Adam, you're known for short form improv with the ponies. But are these kind of lessons the same across both short form and long form? Yeah, you know, the concept is is really the same. Now, short form can be a little bit different in some aspects because a lot of times with short form comedy, you don't have the time to build up to a punchline or to build the scene. You kind of have to get where you're going very quickly. So I like to think that short form improv, you take all the same lessons, you put them in a blender, you you spin them up really quick, and then you go right very fast for whatever the same scene building would be in a long form scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as far as long form goes, you, you know, everyone has that same instinct. Um, the goal uh, that we talk about in long form is actually picking up like kind of right where short form ends. So you still have to be able to come to that joke and that can be hard. You know, you have to anticipate where that punchline is going to be and what the most interesting choice is going to be. So it's all of that, you know, kind of similar hard work, but you can't force that to be the end of a situation because as any good short former knows, you you hit them with that punchline and then you get back out of the way so that you can get another one in. And I think sometimes in long form, you find people trying to say, oh, well, I know what the joke is going to be. So now I'm going to try to get everyone else on stage to work with me for 15 minutes until we can get to that joke. And the reality is that's just not possible. Nobody... Right can read your mind or sustain a joke for that long. So so it's it's the same muscles, you just flex them in different ways. I think what is always amazing to me, particularly when I watch The Stable Boys, the long form, is you've got these wild scenarios. Everyone's coming at it from a slightly different angle and you're all working together and somehow... And this is really where your magic happens, Kathleen. You manage to bring all the various component parts and wrap them up into a big bow at the end so it all makes sense. And sometimes I sit and listen and watch you and I think, I have no idea how you're going to ever bring all of this together. But you do every single time. Well, I have to, I thank you. I have to credit my short form training in that because I think that's one of the, that's one of the real magical elements that a short form improviser has to be able to have. They need to be able to, to see all of these different threads in whether it's, um, you know, a prompt that was given or the rules of the game, the short form game you're playing. And you have to say, I am going to pull the most interesting aspects of all of these into one overarching way. And so I think that there's definitely a lot to be learned between the two forms of improv together. Well, it is certainly one of the things that I'm missing while we're in isolation. So if there's any plans for a viewing of the stable boys or the ponies all on Zoom, all doing their own social distancing, (laughs) then count me in. I will buy a ticket for that because that would be awesome fun (laughs) to see. Well, fantastic. We are out of time. Time flies when you're doing improv. It's so much fun. But we will check back in with you. Well, we, it's a royal we. I will check back in with you next week. We, the audience, will check back in with you next week for more improv lessons from The Ponies, courtesy of Adam Bretzky, and The Stable Boys, courtesy of Kathleen Johnson. Thank you both so much. 
Kathleen's blowing a kiss. I don't know why I blew a kiss. You can't see me, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> there we go. Our next flying visit today is to Sega Browdis Gallery, where a new Cuban contemporary exhibit is set to open online this Friday. And here to tell us more about it and talk us through a couple of specific artworks is Sega Browdis Gallery Director, Hannah Reeves. Hello, Hannah. Hi, how are you doing? Great. It's lovely. I know nobody can see this because we're on the radio, but I can see you on my Zoom connection with lots of artworks behind you. So that's a really great display of the works that are coming up. Last week, we talked about two of the artists who are going to be in the show Michael Sotomayor and mm -hmm. Frank Valdez That's um, right. who are we going to talk about this week so today we have um, we're looking at a piece by um, Andy Yanez Bulto who was our recent artist in residence here in Colombia? He's uh, back in Havana now, a painter. Um, and then we have another piece by Dorian Aguero Anaya, who is a printmaker who's also based in Havana. Now, Andy's work was all done in Colombia. Is that right? He stayed on as an artist in residence, or he came here as an artist in residence last year, courtesy of you. Mm -hmm. And so the whole body of work that we're going to see in this year's exhibit was all done in Colombia. Yeah, it's all brand new. Well, actually, like all of the artists in this exhibit, he's a young and really, really active, prolific artist. And uh, it, truly, this is an immense amount of work to have done in a little under three months, but he painted constantly while he was here. And every one of these pieces was made in Colombia. And they're all figurative. So are all of the models from here in Colombia? They're not, actually. He does photo shoots with professional models and professional photographers in advance of an entire series a lot of times. And so he was actually on another residency, I think in Germany, when he had the photography done in preparation for this series. And he does a lot of um, sketching, actually, it, sketching in quotation marks in Photoshop. So he kind of plays with the images and the arrangements of the figures and the imagery. And then by the time he's making a painting, he's working partly from memory, partly from like a digital collage, just as a reference material. And then of course, from these direct uh, model photographs that he's prepared. So tell us about his technique. Well, um, Andy is a really classically and highly trained painter, figural painter. And um, th th this is just kind of a little anecdote, but when he was here, we, you know, we have an event called Social Sketch and we uh, co-host with 8th Street Makers and have a bunch of people over to just kind of bring their materials and sit and informally sketch at the gallery. And um, he came and it was, I think, still a little bit, he was feeling kind of shy and um but was like wanting to connect and he didn't remember to bring materials and so we had like the typing paper and the crayon box that we give to little kids when they need to color when their parents are looking at art and he sat down with those and made a couple of the most beautiful figural sketches you have ever seen in like blue and green crayola crayons because he has so much you know, in his mind about, you know, this understanding of anatomy and such a thorough understanding of figural drawing that he can sit down. So he sat down for a few minutes and he made his sketches and then he was kind of like, okay, I did social sketch and they laughed. <laughs> what happened to the sketches? Um, I think our staff ended up with them. I think Johnny has one and maybe Joel has one of them, but that's yeah. adorable. <laughs> So the works that he has that you're exhibiting are mostly oil and then with gold leaf. Is that right? That's right. How, how does yeah, he lay those so, down? 
So the gold leaf, you know, it is real gold and it's applied to um, a special form of adhesive and it's actually underneath a lot of the, the painting that he's doing over the top. On at least one of these, he was talking about having a glowing solar effect. And I think that's kind of interesting because in the last series that we showed from him two years ago, some of the very first things that we bought when we went to Havana were the Lunar series. And those are all grayscale, you know, figural works. And so these are solar, but really the figure for him is always related in this like truly classical sense to these natural phenomena, the sea, the sun, the moon. They are exquisite. When I first saw them, I thought they were photographs on gold leaf because they are so hyper-realistic and so beautiful and so much light and dark contained within them, so much untold story about them. The other person we're going to talk about today is Dorian Aguero Anaya, who is a printmaker, and he this is his first time at the gallery. Tell us about his work. He is an artist who is new to us. And, you know, you've probably picked up on this, but something that's a little bit thematic in this exhibit is that these are kind of the new guard of these Havana artists. They're very, very young artists. And so they have in common this uh, really extensive, you know, Cuban art education. And then they're applying that in these really active and new and kind of innovative ways. And so he's combining lithography, which is a form of printmaking, um, with a lot of hand coloring. And so um, in the piece that you're looking at, he's done these drawings of cows. That, that theme runs throughout the whole body of work and actually through almost all of this artist's work, painting and printmaking. What is it about cows? So for Dorian, the cows are symbolic of um, society in a larger sense. And so they can be a symbol of, or they can symbolize herd mentality when he's combining them, or they can also symbolize maybe like going against societal expectations and even like dominance and subjugation. And so he's arranging cows and combining them and then combining them with some kind of pop art imagery um, in a way that it shows you actually something about humanity. He's just made these cows his cast of characters and they are particularly beautiful, you know, and expressive renderings of cows that are doing that communication for him. In the one that I've posted on our Facebook page, uh, there are three cow heads on the left Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure what it is on the right. Talk us through that <laughs> specific piece that people can see on our Facebook page. Yeah, so the title of that piece is Tres Veces Te Negué, um, which means three times I denied you, which is a reference to uh, the, the biblical scene uh, with Peter and Christ um, when the apostle Peter is um, sort of running away from he hopes being executed. But so there's this, there's something in that, like the, the idea of following or obeying. And the images that are on the right that are reaching out to the cow, those are like the farmer's hands holding out some sort of treat. And so three cow heads in a row are sort of responding to this, you know, human hand. And that's the most like human, you know, presence that makes it into these works, by the way. So the show opens on Friday and it's all going to be online and you're going to release a catalog at the same time. That's right. So starting at 6 p.m. on Friday, which is when First Friday starts for us, you can go to the website, sagerbrotusgallery.com and right from the landing page, you'll have an entry into the Cuban exhibit page. 
on the web page, you'll see a straightforward set of images and captioning information about every work in the show, along with a beautiful slideshow. But then also on that page, you'll see a link to download a PDF catalog, and that's its own set of designs and includes some, some really lovely install shots and just the really uh, wonderful design of our designer, Johnny Pez. Um, he works very hard on that. And so that's sort of its own e-publication. We also go live at the same time on artsy.net, which is the place where people are going to be able to immediately click to buy artwork. And it kind of has its own presentation if people are already oriented to Artsy. That's another avenue. So in terms of buying artwork, we're now competing with the whole world to buy a Sega Browdis piece of art rather than just a local I'm afraid community. you are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, get there early on Friday, everybody. Okay, Hannah, thank you so much. I guess this show will be up online for a month and then you go to the May exhibit as as usual. Yes, we do. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for pulling this off during these strange times. I've I've had a chance to look through the catalog and it is a work of beauty. So great job, Johnny Pez. Great job, everybody at Sega Browdis. It's going to be a great show. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you so much. Our last stop today is to the Bibliophiles Haven on Columbia's 9th Street Skylark Bookshop, where we get to hang out with its owner, Alex George. Hello, Alex. Hi, Diana. How are you? I am doing pretty well for the most part. You know, like everybody else, there are up moments and down moments, but on the whole, you know, it's it's okay. Well, these are strange times we live in. <laughs> they, they are, definitely. We need a new word other than strange. I keep seeing us calling them strange times. It feels like they're beyond that. That isn't quite encompassing enough as an adjective. There was a uh, an old Chinese saying that, that was, may you live in interesting times. But what, what people always forgot was that it wasn't just a saying, it was actually a curse. And I think that everyone's beginning to discover that for real now. <laughs> yes, yeah, so maybe, maybe that's not the word to use either. We need to come up with something that doesn't sound like a curse, uh, but fully describes this, the time we're in. So you have a new book coming out in May, The Paris Hours. It's your next book. And as authors are always usually at least one book ahead of what we see on the bookshelves, are you already working on your next book? Yes, I am. I am. Um... I'm actually, it's for the third time of asking. I've, I've, I've tried to begin my next book three times now, and the first two times didn't get very far. But I think this one, I finally found a story that has got some legs. And so I'm uh, fully underway, uh, not quite as far along as I would like to be, but then one never is, I suppose. But it's, uh, it's fun to be back into that world again and uh, telling stories. Do you have a deadline? Do the publishers say, I need the first draft by November the 1st? Or are you famous enough now that they just say, give it to us whenever you want, Alex? I don't have a deadline at the moment because I don't have enough of a book to sell. So it's, it's, uh, it, which, which is a good thing and a bad thing um, because uh, deadlines are never any fun. But you do at least when you, when you have a contract and you're writing to a deadline, you at least know that the thing is going to get published. So um, I don't, but I quite like not having that. It gives me a little bit more freedom to take my time and particularly at the beginning of a book because I, I write so extraordinarily slowly anyway that um, you know, I know that I'm going to be uh, involved in a project for several years. So it's very, very important that it's the right one. And you certainly don't want to be uh, in a position where you spent two years doing a thing and then you wake up one morning and discover that actually that wasn't what you meant to do at all. So it's important to get it right from the outset, which is why I've sort of had these these multiple false starts because I just realized after a while that it wasn't quite where I wanted to be for the next several years. So, but this one, I think we're good. Uh, and, but no, no, no deadline, but I'm I'm pretty happy about that. 
I'm curious whether you think there'll be a huge number of pandemic novels coming out in the next couple of years or whether you think there'll be a lag time before anybody wants to A, write about it and B, read about it. Well, I think both of those things are true. That's very smart. And I also think it does take some time for these kinds of disasters to... We need to live them, uh, uh, first of all, and then we need to have lived them and to have experienced them and to process what went on. Um, there was a definite lag time, and the most obvious parallel in recent times, of course, was 9-11, and there was definitely a lag between that day and the actual, the, the, the novels that, you know, often went, and once that began, it seemed like they would never stop. But, but there, was a, there was definitely a lag time. And I think it's important because you need to be able, certainly as a novelist, I mean, our jobs is, is to reflect the, the world around us. Um, but in order to do that with any sort of meaning or substance, you need to have thought about it and, and digested it. And, and that takes time. Uh, it takes time and none of us know what we're even looking at still anymore. So it'll be a while, I would think. But I'm sure that come the time, there will be many of them. What I can tell you is that we have, we can't keep The Stand by Stephen King in our shop at the moment. People keep asking for it and we keep selling it to them. Well, and I guess, too, that now that it's actually happened and we're no longer in the realm of science fiction, you have to move the category to a different part of the bookshop. <laughs> yes. You know, it's not. Pa pandemics are no longer science fiction. Yeah, it's gone from horror to, uh, <laughs> to current events. <laughs> right. So anyway, we're here for a book review. What books do you have for us this week? What's new on the shelves? So... The biggest book in the store at the moment that is that is brand new and is flying off the shelves is called Untamed by Glennon Doyle, which is the third memoir that she has written. Uh, she's best known for A Love Warrior. And uh, this, this book is, I mean, it's part memoir and it's also a kind of a what would I call it? it it's a de declaration um, and, and an exhortation to women to be themselves and not to um, allow themselves to be confined by societal norms. And it tells the story of falling in love with somebody who wasn't her husband and having a divorce and then marrying somebody else. And, and it's really just a plea, uh, I guess, in some ways for women in particular, but everybody really, to look into themselves and to listen to the voices within them rather than allowing themselves to be constrained and confined by convention uh, and all of those things. And I think it would be very popular with people who liked uh, Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert, those kinds of books. And, and it's written in a very sort of breezy, very easy to digest and uh, funny tone. So that's been amazing. And we've had people just calling up and ordering sort of three or four at a time. Um, it's been been incredibly successful. And we uh, we actually have some signed copies in the shop, although... <laughs> They are going quickly. So that's um that's really been the big title this week. Okay, and that's Glennon Doyle. Yes, Glennon Doyle, Untamed. And uh, some of the other books um that we uh we have been looking at, they're not they're not new, but they just seem like they were maybe useful books for people to hear about in this time. There's a wonderful small publisher, and small publishers, they do incredible work and, and sometimes it can be difficult for them to get their books looked at or reviewed because they don't have the budgets, they can't compete with the big five publishers, but they, they do incredible work and we're, we're big fans and supporters of, of smaller publishers. There's a publisher called Microcosm Publishing and they produce these wonderful little books, which we've actually featured a few times on our Instagram feed 
Uh, and one is called Coping Skills. And there's another one called This Is Your Brain on Anxiety. And there are a couple of other ones which have asterisks in various words, which I can't, not allowed to, <laughs> to say out loud. But they, um, they've been very popular and they are based in science. They're written by doctors, but they're also very entertaining and can be very useful. I mean, people, you know, I think that as, as this situation continues and it's clearly going to continue for a while, we're going to be seeing a lot more issues with mental health. And, you know, it's a serious subject and one that deserves to be taken seriously. And I mean, obviously I would say this, but <clears throat> I think that you can find the answer to most things in a book. Uh, and certainly those books have been very popular and I, and I really think will be useful for people who are perhaps finding themselves in positions where they haven't been before and under pressures that they hadn't felt before. And it's going to be possible for them to hopefully use those books and really to develop some coping mechanisms in an absolutely unheralded an unprecedented environment. Are these books that you kind of dip in and out of or they sit down and read from cover to cover? Books? No, you can absolutely dip in and out of them. Yeah. Great. And anything coming up at Skylark that we should know about? Any online fun things? Well, not at Skylark per se, but we are doing a couple of things online with Unbound. We have announced two online events. and We're, we're, we're calling this, and one of my board members came up with this title, which I thought was very smart, is we're Housebound Unbound. And we're doing an event on April the 23rd at seven o'clock, uh, which is, uh, and what, what we're doing is basically recreating what we were gonna be doing at the festival, but online. First one of those um, is uh, about speculative fiction, and it involves Amber Sparks and Alexander Weinstein, two wonderful short story writers who both write stories that are set just a little bit in the future. And um, that allows them a degree of license with the stories that they tell, which is a lot of fun, and it allows them to ask all sorts of very interesting questions about where we're going. So that's happening on the 23rd of April at 7 o'clock, which is a Thursday. And then the following Thursday, the 30th of April, we're doing another one which we've just announced today. And that is about historical fiction. And it involves Whitney Scherer, who wrote The Age of Light, and Meg Waite-Clayton, who wrote Last Train to Paris, and me, because we have all written books set in Europe in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, and we all use, to a greater or lesser degree, real characters, real-life characters. And so the discussion is going to be about that and about the extent to which when you do that, what, what sort of duties do you have to tell the truth and how much license do you have to take real life characters and change what they did and how they behaved. So that's going to be a hopefully a fun conversation as well. And we're looking to do some more of those, but right now we just have those two. Okay, two dates for the diary, April the 23rd, April the 30th, to Housebound Unbound event. Alex, thank you so much. And we will check back in with you next week to find out what's happening in the world of books. Yeah. See you soon. Thanks, Diana. And that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for staying at home and for listening. I'll be back next week with more ideas and happenings that can help us stay artfully nourished. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Mm -hmm.